You're listening to Recording to Sam, episode 59. It's according to Sam, episode 59, and let's get this thing started. Back with another podcast. Thank you guys for being here and for listening. Uh, there's a lot going on and a lot to talk about. Uh, I definitely want to talk about the new revelations in this uh, uh, Mike Flynn uh, general Mike Flynn, uh, case. I mean, it's absolutely explosive. It's what I've told you, um, all along about the FBI, uh, being a criminal organization full of dirty cops. Uh, I'm going to talk about that, uh, maybe a little bit more in a future podcast. Uh, I really want to get in depth in that, but I'm going to touch uh, on it a little bit uh, more the idea, the theme that the uh, FBI is a criminal organization full of dirty cops. Going to talk about that a little bit uh, more today. But uh, Michael Flynn and the new revelations that uh, were brought to light over the last 24 hours, I'll probably uh, go into depth in in, uh, a future podcast in that. And then also... In my next podcast, I can already tell you what I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to really address this uh, topic much at all in, in this podcast, but I'm going to devote an, an entire uh, podcast to talking about the allegation, sexual assault allegation against uh, Joe Biden and, and, and make a difference, make a comparison uh, between the uh, sexual uh, assault allegations uh, against Donald Trump and talk about the the whole thing and you know um how i think you know according to sam uh a rational person should be looking at uh at both uh cases and 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 we'll talk about that in the next podcast um what are we going to talk about today what we're going to talk about today is china virus of course because everybody's talking about china virus i have some uh new stuff uh to share with you and uh if you haven't listened to my past uh three podcasts i've been talking about this uh, for the last three episodes uh, please visit the website uh that's according to sam the number com. you'll find the archive there um you can also find the archive and follow the podcast on apple podcast on soundcloud um, all by doing a search uh, for according to sam uh, with the number two um, also on facebook and um, on uh, youtube uh, do the search for according to sam podcast there and, and uh, you should find uh, the the archive and and all of the podcasts on those platforms um, now today what i want to talk about are the numbers the COVID numbers and the numbers are everything. There are a lot of people who are saying that the numbers don't matter. Oh, contraire. The numbers matter a lot. The numbers are everything. From the beginning, it was all about the curve and flattening the curve. And the curve is about numbers. <laughs> flattening the curve is about numbers. So it's very, very important 
that the for us to have a full awareness and uh, of what's going on to make decisions we need to know you know cases that's where everybody keeps talking about testing 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 you know if you live in california and i just want to say this if you're one of these people who say oh there's not enough tests you know we don't have enough tests and you live in california and you haven't been uh tested there's over 600 testing sites in california they're free Go get tested if that's important to you. But uh, we need to know how many cases there are so we can have an accurate number in the mortality rate. Because if there are less cases, then the mortality rate is or, or if there's more cases out there that we don't know, then the mortality rate is inflated. Another thing that inflates the mortality rate is the classification of the cause of death. How how someone is classified as their cause of death, how that's classified, can inflate the numbers. And that's important. I want you to listen to this first clip that I'm going to play today. This is the uh, director of uh, Department of Public Health. She's in charge of the Department of Public Health in the state of Illinois. And I want you to listen to what she says here. I just want to be clear in terms of the definition of people dying of COVID. So the case definition is is very simplistic. It means at the time of death, um, it, it was a COVID positive diagnosis. So that means that if you were in hospice and had already been given, hospice. you know, <laughs> you're in hospice. I mean, when you're in hospice, you're at death's door, people, at death's door. She's saying you could be in hospice and then contract the uh, COVID-19 China virus, and you're going to be classified as a COVID death. Take a listen. Um, it, it was a COVID-positive diagnosis. So that means that if you were in hospice and had already been given you know, a few weeks to live, and then you also were found to have COVID, that would be counted as a COVID death. It means that if, um, it technically, if even if you died of a clear alternate cause, but you- Clear alternate cause? Um, it technically, if even if you died of a clear alternate cause, but you had COVID at the same time, it's still listed as a COVID death. So um, everyone who's listed as a COVID death doesn't mean that that was the cause of the death, but they had COVID at the time. You hear that? They had COVID at the time of their death, but may not be the cause of death. Someone gets, there's a really funny meme that was going around uh, the internets, and it was a uh, a skydiver without a parachute <laughs> diving out of a plane, and it said, skydiver forgets his parachute, dies of COVID-19. <laughs> but that's what's going on here, and it's not only in the state of Illinois. This is a policy that is going on nationally. Uh, this is Dr. Bricks uh, from the White House uh, COVID team. I want you to listen to what she says here. There are other countries that if you had a pre-existing condition, and let's say the virus caused you to go to the ICU and then have a heart or kidney problem, some countries are recording that as a heart issue or a kidney issue and not they should. COVID-19. Um, right now, we're still recording it, and we'll 
I mean, the great thing about having forms that come in and a form that has the ability to market as COVID-19 infection, the intent is right now that those, if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that. Did you hear that? Now that comes from the doctor who is in, who's one of the doctors who's her and Fauci are, are in charge of the COVID team. And when she says we are counting them as COVID cases, if they had pre-existing conditions, uh, you know, their death has nothing to do with uh, coronavirus, China virus at all. If they, if they are found to have coronavirus at the time of death or even after doing an autopsy, that is a COVID-19 death. Now, these are in the numbers. And, and we're talking about the numbers because it's all about the curve and flattening the curve. What happens to the curve if you take these people out of the numbers who died of some, you know, you know, long battle with cancer or uh, they're elderly in a hospice or I mean, what happens to the numbers in, in that case? What happens to the curve in that case if you take those numbers out those cases now um these are the two doctors that they went viral they're two doctors that own a urgent care uh group of facilities in california uh they made a video they're mds doctors uh they made a video that was in turn censored by facebook uh, twitter youtube uh took it down and they were going over the numbers and talking about, uh, you know, the real numbers, the real mortality rate and saying that, you know, it's ultimately ridiculous that we are in this lockdown and, and the stay at home order. Elon Musk has come out recently as well and said that it is fascist, these uh, lockdowns and stay at home orders that are being implemented n nationwide. Uh you know, these guys break down tons of numbers. Uh, their training as MDs uh, help them to to uh, decipher the numbers. And, and they're trying to explain it in their video, which is censored. Um, but another really interesting part of their uh, video, which is about an hour long. Uh, I want you to listen to this part and what they say here. Take a listen. When someone, what's interesting to me too is when someone dies. It sounds in this like it's right one now, channel. Sorry about that, um, but this is going to be uh, a clip in one channel, just so you know why it sounds a little off. And when someone, what's interesting to me too is when someone dies in this country right now, they're not talking about the high blood pressure, the diabetes, the stroke. They say, did they die from COVID? Co there's as you, I, we've been to hundreds of autopsies. You you don't talk about one thing. You talk about comorbidities. Their vessels were narrowed. Their lungs were a smoker. COVID was part of it. It is not the reason they died, folks. It is one of many reasons. So to be so simplistic to say that's a COVID death because they have COVID, you know how many people die with pneumonia or people that die from flu? With flu, I should say. It's not from flu. Their, their lungs were compromised by COPD. They had a heart attack two years ago. They have a weakened body we aren't pressured to test for flu, but ER doctors now, my friends that I talk to say, you know, it's interesting when I'm when I'm writing up my death report, I'm being pressured to add COVID pressure. I'm being these are doctors who have friends that are doctors who work in, in ERs 
And he's and, and they're talking to their doctor friends that are telling them when people are dying that there is pressure. Now, who's applying the pressure? I don't know who's applying the pressure. I would love to know who's applying the pressure. But there's pressure on these doctors to code these deaths as China virus COVID deaths. Listen to this guy again. Flu. But ER doctors now, my friends that I talk to say, you know, it's interesting. When I'm, when I'm writing up my death report, I'm being pressured to add COVID. Why is that? Pressured. Why are we being pressured to add COVID? Why? 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 Why is a good question. But you're not allowed to ask that question because YouTube will take your video down. <laughs> uh, Twitter, Facebook, Zuckerberg, Das Führer Mark Zuckerberg will take your video down if you ask the question why. Why are doctors being pressured to to mark these deaths as COVID China virus deaths. Very interesting question. I'm just, you know, helping share the question here on my podcast. Now in Pennsylvania, uh, the, the director of the department of health in Pennsylvania, they actually removed about 200 deaths from their tally. And I want you to listen to this clip uh, with the with the director from the Department of Health from Pennsylvania, and she explains why she removed these deaths from their tally. Take a listen. And now back to the death toll, which actually went down today, and here's why. Pennsylvania now has confirmed 1,421 deaths from COVID-19, 69 in Allegheny County, 46 in Beaver County, and 17 in Westmoreland. The state previously reported a higher death toll that included both confirmed and probable cases. But today, the state health secretary said probable cases are still being investigated and verified. So- Just probable cases. Why are probable cases in the tally in the first place? Take a listen. They are being removed from the death toll. These cases were previously reported as probable, but further review has determined that we needed more information before we could attribute them to a death related to COVID-19. This does not impact our confirmed case count. It just impacts this new probable case count yeah so how many states are doing the probable case counts are these probable case counts included in the numbers and what does it do to the curve if we take these probable cases? if every state not just pennsylvania takes these probable cases off the tally what i'm trying to explain to you people is these numbers are not to be trusted you know we've been through this for about two months now in this lockdown, mandatory stay-at-home orders nationwide, uh, the hysteria. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not saying that the virus is is not real and they're not people that are really dying. But this sniffs of a PSYOP to me, a big PSYOP. And when you start censoring doctors, and taking their video off of YouTube and and a legitimate question that other MDs who are not Fauci 
because you know that's what you uh, or uh, YouTube said. You know, if it goes against Fauci or or the World Health Organization, she actually said the World Health Organization. But um, you know, if it goes against the the what's the word I'm looking for the the narrative that they want to project the fear that they want to project if it goes against that it's going to be removed it's going to be censored so when i start seeing stuff like that where open debate is being censored and uh you know people are being taken off of platforms just for asking legitimate questions about the numbers as i've shown you they're legitimate questions about the number that's when i started thinking that this is a psyop and this is not on the up and up and we're being manipulated uh here's tucker carlson from the other night he's making reference to these doctors being taken off of uh, youtube want you to take a listen to a little bit of his monologue good evening and welcome to tucker carlson tonight last night on this show we played you a clip from a nearly hour-long video produced by two physicians in california doctors dan erickson and artin masihi likely many of you had already seen it that video has had more than five million views on youtube in the presentation, the two doctors presented a flurry of data. These are doctors. To a- I just want to make it clear. This is not your Uncle Larry in his uh, room making videos without any credentials. These are MDs, okay? And there are a lot of people who criticize their work. If you criticize their work, then you make a video showing where their work is wrong, showing where they made mistakes. You don't censor their video, are currently learning about this virus and how it spreads. They recited pages of government statistics and then interpreted them in light of their own long clinical experience as doctors. At one point, they noted that the newly adjusted death rate in their state of California, which is much lower than anyone expected it to be, and they asked if government officials there should change their policies based on this new science. Watch. We've seen 1,227 deaths in the state of California with a possible uh, incidence or prevalence of 4.7 million. That means you have a zero. I wonder why it's not one channel when uh, Tucker plays the clip uh, from these guys. But um, anyway, that's uh, the clip that I played earlier only had them with one channel. Um, just wondering. ...of dying from COVID-19 in the state of California. I want you to listen to what he said there. Sorry. Incidence or prevalence. Over. Of 4.7 million. That means you have a 0.03 chance of dying from COVID-19 in the state of California. 0.03 chance of dying from COVID in the state of California. Is that, does that necessitate sheltering in place? Does that necessitate shutting down medical systems? I'll put uh, the, the entire video uh, from these doctors in the show notes and you should watch it because they make a compelling case. And the funny thing about YouTube, uh, taking it down and censoring them is that, I mean, only thing you do by doing that is draw more attention to the video, which you can find on other outlets, but besides YouTube, you know, YouTube's not, uh, the only game in town anymore. And, And technology has changed the information game. Um, just wanted to say that. Does that necessitate people being out of work? So whatever your view of the mass quarantines, and maybe you're enthusiastically for them, the questions you just heard are valid questions. In fact, they're critical questions. We should all be asking those questions, including and especially our policymakers. 
But as Dr. Erickson pointed out later in the video, dissent of any kind is no longer tolerated in this country. Fact-based honesty, which is the soul of science, is under attack, even in hospitals. Dr. Erickson described physicians being pressured to classify illnesses and deaths as related to coronavirus, whether they believe that to be true or not. We aren't pressured to test for flu, but ER doctors now, my friends that I talk to say, you know, it's interesting, when I'm, when I'm writing up my death report, I'm being pressured to add COVID. Why is that? Why are we being pressured to add COVID to maybe increase the numbers and make it look a little bit worse than it is? I think so. So what you just heard, what Dr. Erickson described, is called lying. And lying has no place in science ever. It's scary to think it takes place on a large scale in hospitals. This is about science. Nancy Pelosi, uh, Joe Biden, we got got to listen to science-based facts. It has to be science. Well, science is about different uh, 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 views, different theories. You know, that's why the the peer review part of science is so important. Because you come out with a theory, you do a test, and you submit it for for your peers, other scientists, to look at it and critique it. It's an important part of it. This is Orwellian what is happening when uh, other professionals, other MDs, other uh, uh, specialists are being censored and their theories are being shut out of the debate. No place in science ever. It's scary to think it takes place on a large scale in hospitals. He says it does. Viewers of Erickson's video were shocked and transfixed by this. They forwarded the video to friends who forwarded it on to their friends. And suddenly, millions of people who have spent the last six weeks on a diet of Tiger King and Internet memes were watching sober-minded medical researchers reading from charts of statistics. It's hard to recall a science video taking off like this one did. Not everyone was impressed by it. Some criticized the doctor's policy conclusions. And of course, that's fair. Decent people have different opinions. We're not entirely certain what the perfect response to this pandemic is. Nobody is certain. There's no Nobody. answer. No, that's a very, very important point that he says there, that nobody is certain about anything with this novel virus, this new virus. It's trial and error. Everyone should be uh, putting their professional input in as we try to battle this virus and figure out the best way to combat this virus. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows. And any like the the even, you know, professionals like Fauci. Fauci said we're going to have 200,000 uh, deaths based on a model from Washington State, which they have readjusted down to 60,000 now. And I think it's back up to 70,000 because the models are crap. As I've told you, he hasn't been right on everything. Nobody knows what's going on. The states that are opening, that are that are more risk adverse, that want to open, they don't know what to expect. But it's trial and error. The people who want to shelter in, in place and, and stay at home, they don't they don't have any more superior knowledge and know what's going on. Nobody knows. That's why a variety of opinions, professional opinions, are what you need right now certain what the perfect response to this pandemic is. Nobody is certain. There's no objective answer at the moment. At best, we can plod along with open minds and good faith. More informed debate is exactly what we need to make wise decisions going forward. 
Unfortunately for all of us, informed debate is exactly what the authorities don't want. They want unquestioned obedience. So they're cracking down on free expression. Last night, the doctor's video, the one you just saw, was pulled off of YouTube, the largest video hosting site in the world. It wasn't an accident. YouTube admitted doing it. The company cited a violation of, quote, community guidelines, and they did not apologize. Looking back when all of this is finally this is ministry over of truth. Be, this is truly Orwellian, what is happening here. I think that I said that uh, Facebook and Twitter took them down, too. I'm not uh, absolutely sure that those platforms did take these doctors down, but I know that YouTube did, and that's where uh, they had initially uh, posted it. YouTube is Google, and they are. Uh, this action lets you know that they're being extremely authoritarian uh, by censoring. I mean, censorship is censoring of free thought, people. And... This is straight up Nazi Germany, what's going on with YouTube taking this video down because they don't agree with these doctors' uh, opinions. But Facebook and, and Twitter are also censoring, too. But he's going to get into that. It's likely we'll see this moment, what YouTube just did, as a turning point in the way we live in this country, a sharp break with 250 years of law and custom. The Two Doctors video was produced by a local television channel in California. It was, in effect, a mainstream news story. The video was not pornographic. It didn't violate copyright or incite violence or commit libel. It didn't break any law. The only justification for taking it down was that the two physicians on screen had reached different conclusions from the people currently in charge. It was a form of dissent from orthodoxy. YouTube and its parent company, Google, have take note of that dissent from orthodoxy form of dissent from orthodoxy. YouTube and its parent company, Google, have now officially banned dissent. The CEO of YouTube admitted that openly. But then we also talk about um, removing information that is problematic. You know, of course, anything that is medically unsubstantiated. So people saying like, take vitamin C. Um, take vitamin C is medically unsubstantiated. Now, <laughs> YouTube is telling you their uh, uh, minion viewers that vitamin C, you can't say take vitamin C on YouTube. <laughs> that is medically unsubstantiated so people saying like take vitamin c um you know um take turmeric like those are all will cure you um those are the examples of things that would be a violation of our policy um anything that would go against world health organization recommendations oh, anything that would go against world health organization the group that told us there was no human to human transmission uh well into mid-january that that group we have to listen to them this would be a violation of our policy. And so remove is another really important part of our policy. We're removing, quote, anything that would go against World Health Organization recommendations. It'll now be taken off the Internet. Consider that for a minute. As a matter just of science, it's ludicrous. Like everyone else involved in global pandemic policy, the WHO has often been wrong in its recommendations. A lot Told of people you. have. In mid-January, WHO told us that coronavirus could not spread from person to person. Absolutely. In March, they told us that face masks didn't work. Those were lies. Yeah, everybody's were wearing the face masks. Platforms. <laughs> Doctors who are actually treating patients with the virus, meanwhile, have just been banned. So, no, this is not about science. Censorship never is about science. Control. It's about power. Control. Big technology companies are using this tragedy to increase their power over the American population. They're working in concert with politicians in order to do it.
Just today, Facebook removed an events page for a political protest in Michigan. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who runs that state, was no doubt pleased to see it. Grossly mismanaging an entire state is a lot easier when citizens are not allowed to complain about it, and now they're not. Last week, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg explained that protests like these are no longer protected political speech. They're, quote, misinformation. How do you deal with the fact that Facebook is now being used to organize a lot of these protests to defy social distancing, defy the social distancing guidelines in states? Is somebody trying to organize something like that? Does that qualify as harmful information? We do classify that as harmful harmful information. Just that question alone. Harmful information. (laughs) Guidelines in states. Is somebody trying to organize something like that? Does that qualify as harmful information? We do classify that as harmful misinformation, and we take that down. That's Fura. That's Fura Mark Zuckerberg. That is a phrase familiar to anyone who has watched totalitarian regimes in any country. It's now how Mark Zuckerberg describes political opinions he doesn't like. Our free press exists to push back against obvious abuses of power like this one. It's the reason we have a First Amendment. It's the only reason we have a First Amendment. But suddenly our media are not concerned about freedom of speech. Reporters applaud our overlords as they punish us for disagreeing. You just saw That's because they're activists. I I told you that in uh, my last podcast and explained that to you. Uh, I mean, corporate media... They basically are there to protect corporate interests. Um, so, and and I explained that to you like my last. I don't want to, you know, repeat my last podcast talking about uh, hydroxychloroquine. But since my last podcast, uh, you know, some information has uh, come out uh, about a new drug, the uh, remdesivir, and uh, and it, it's really. Uh, makes it's really suspicious uh, at the same people that were against hydroxychloroquine and saying that you know the president was giving false hope and calling it a game changer. Uh, those same people are pushing rindisivir now, which is a new drug, hasn't been approved uh, for anything brand new, IV form, more expensive. We had this one study that was done with the uh, vet's hospital that uh, the media started to uh, run with and say, again, that disproved hydroxychloroquine not only had no uh, positive effects in, in fighting coronavirus, but it was actually killing people. Uh, this is a CNN report about this study that they were, you know, uh, running over and over again, showing that this is proof the president was wrong about hydroxychloroquine. I want you to take a listen to this. A major setback in the hopes that the drug hydroxychloroquine could be used as a possible treatment for coronavirus. A clinical study indicates the drug touted by President Trump does not work and, in fact, may have a high death risk. Sanjay Gupta, chief medical correspondent, joins us. So what, what more about this study? Well, this is a, uh, one of the largest studies now that we've seen on hydroxychloroquine. Having said that, it's still a relatively small study, Anderson. We're reporting on these things because of the intense interest in these medications, obviously. Uh, but it's a small study. It's not a peer-reviewed study. You know, that, that's the sort of things that you... So it's not peer-reviewed. <laughs> it's a small study that's not peer-reviewed. Who cares what this study says? 
They're actually just using hydroxychloroquine in the Z pack, and everyone who uses the hydroxychloroquine has said that you need to use it with zinc. They weren't using zinc in this study, but it's not peer reviewed. Who cares? It's not science. And then this drug uh, that is being promoted has been worked on for months now while everyone's downing the cheap hydroxychloroquine. Uh, this rindisivir, uh, rindis, rindisivir uh, drug is being touted as a game changer. I can't believe they use the exact word that uh, Trump used about hydroxychloroquine, but they're touting it as a game changer. And we have new hope about this drug that hasn't been approved <laughs> Hasn't been used anywhere. Hydroxychloroquine is 80 years old and, and has been uh, used for lupus, malaria, Lyme disease, other stuff. You have 80 years of experience with this drug. Remdesivir is brand new, more expensive, IV form only, but this is the game changer. Now listen to this CNN report about remdesivir. What it is proven is that a drug can block this virus. Very early results from trials of remdesivir suggest this HIV drug actually might treat COVID-19. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. This is really quite important. This is not a cure. In studies touted by Dr. Fauci today, it lowered mortality and shortened the duration of the illness. This has not been a proven therapeutic. Physicians would probably be reluctant to if they had other choices. They do have other choices. They have hydroxychloroquine and zinc with the Z-pack and, um, and vitamin C. They have a cocktail that has been very effective outside of the United States and even in the United States. They do have another choice besides remdesivir. This is a doctor saying this has not been proven, but it's been touted by Fauci and by the media as this new wonder drug. Are you suspicious? Physicians would probably be reluctant to, if they had other choices, um, to use something that protected in such a marginally valuable way. But we don't have other choices. I just want to say one more thing about remdesivir, this drug that's being much touted today. It is worth noting that right now it is not approved anywhere in the world to treat anything so an extraordinary use authorization hydroxychloroquine 80 years old it treats malaria lyme disease uh lupus remdesivir is not approved for anything brand new more expensive drug gilead pharmaceutical dr fauci is about to make it rain on them from the fda would be extraordinary but these are Extraordinary times, and the FDA tells us that they are in ongoing discussions with the maker of that drug to get it to patients, quote, as quickly as possible. Okay, so listen to what he said. These are extraordinary times, you know, and uh, and we're going to get this drug, you know, out, even though it hasn't been approved, we're going to rush the approval and get it out as soon as possible because these are extraordinary times. But this is not the narrative that they allowed on hydroxychloroquine on CNN, and I just find it very interesting. Now, about this drug, uh, remdesivir, um, uh, not every doctor is sold. This is a, a, a MD, a doctor. Dr. Jeremy Faust has a different opinion about this drug. Are we allowed to listen to Dr. Faust? 
because he's got a different opinion from Dr. Fauci. We're going to listen to him here on According to Sam. Take a listen. Not as optimistic about remdesivir as some others are today? I think that we are seeing a slight glimmer of hope here, but I worry that the exuberance is related to an old saying that there's no sauce better than hunger. And we want something so bad that even something that looks a little bit promising is getting blown out of proportion in terms of what it means for the number of lives that we're going to save here. Why it's so- going to make some money, though. It's going to make some money, uh, Dr. Jeremy Faust. And we have another uh, clip from uh, Dr. Faust here about uh, this topic we're getting ready to get into is a different theory on combating this uh, virus from uh, flattening the curve. Flattening the curve is a theory that we have been employing over the last two months with this stay-at-home lockdown order. But there is another theory out there that is being promoted by professionals, doctors, scientists that is being referred to as herd immunity. Dr. Faust is a Harvard doctor, and I am going to let him explain the theory of herd immunity. Dr. Faust, thank you so much for being here. You say you think that the Diamond Princess cruise ship is an odd lab experiment of sorts, maybe more reliable than the World Health Organization data. Explain. Michael, thanks for having me. It's really an important area that you're doing. We're on the same page here. I think that we've entered a new phase, right? I'm an ER doctor, so what I want to do is I want to reassure the well, and I want to really help focus in on who is sick. And actually, as you say, the Diamond Princess Cruise was a really nice, if unfortunate, laboratory to figure out who the right people are to really be worried about. We now know that young people are very, very unlikely to have any serious problems. They're going to be outliers there. So we're going to hear stories about that, and that's going to scare people. But for the most part, this affects people who are older, who have many, many chronic medical conditions. And what we saw in the Diamond Princess was that the overall fatality rates so far have been lower than the numbers that have been spread by other places like the WHO. And even within the risk group populations who did actually have deaths, the 70-plus, the 80-plus, the, the people with medical problems, Actually, even among those people um, in a closed sort of system, like the Diamond Princess, the numbers were far more encouraging. Here's what you published. Put this up on the screen, Catherine. This all suggests that COVID-19 is a relatively benign disease for most young people and a potentially devastating one for the old and chronically ill, albeit not nearly as risky as reported. Why the disparity, doctor, between what transpired on the Diamond Princess and the WHO number or that which is coming out of China? Because those numbers are not to and be it trusted. Down to actually what you measure, what you test. And, you know, economists do this and doctors do this. And so if you test, if you only have 10 test kits in your whole hospital, you're going to take them to the ICU and you're going to say, here, here are my sick patients, and let's test them. And, of course, the fatality rate among the 10 patients in the ICU would be pretty high and very scary. But then if you have an influx of 100 new test kits, maybe now you can test the whole hospital. And you will actually pick up many, many more cases, but not that many more deaths because those people were okay. That's what I was explaining in the beginning of the podcast is that uh, that – 
you know, I don't even know. I said that if you live in California, we have over 600 testing sites and you can go get tested. I don't even know that that's true because maybe they're not even testing you if you don't have symptoms. I bet you anything. I haven't looked into this, but I bet you anything that if you don't have symptoms that they're not testing you. And uh, what Dr. Faust is explaining there and some other doctors who I'm getting ready to play is that um, is that there are millions of people walking around with the COVID-19 trying a virus that don't have any symptoms that are asymptomatic and young people uh, that are asymptomatic going about their daily business, their daily lives and never show any symptoms from this virus. That's not coming from me. That's what Dr. Faust just said. And I'm going to play other doctors who uh, say the same thing. He didn't really go into the herd immunity the way some of these other doctors are that I'm getting ready to play. But why? What's the important part about, you know, why different opinions from different uh, healthcare professionals and, and different, uh, you know, um, different countries that are doing different things, exploring the, what, what's going on in those countries like Sweden. Why is that important? Because that is what science is. You know, I'll give you a little rundown of, uh, of Western history and how uh, the intellectual thought in the West, you know, uh, developed from what we call the classical period, the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, to the modern period and uh, the period that we're in now, uh, postmodernism. Um, these periods, whether you're talking about the dark age, the middle age, the dark middle age. Uh, so the dark age was a, a classification that the enlightenment thinkers uh, in the 18th century gave to that period that was post the classical period and before the Italian Renaissance and the Reformation. And the enlightenment thinkers said to themselves, if we're the enlightened ones, then we have to look back at this period as, you know, the dark period, because we are the period of light. That's the period of darkness. Most historians now don't refer to that middle period as uh, the dark middle ages anymore, because we have gone back and find and found tons of uh, literature and uh, documentation to, you know, bring light to that period. So most historians refer to it as the low and high Middle Ages. Now, the low and high Middle Ages, really interesting story uh, about how Europe came out of that dark period of uh, the Middle Age. And uh, one of the most significant things that happened uh, was the uh, plague that hit Europe in the 12th century. Now, this plague killed one third of all of Europe, swept through Europe. And after that plague, people were trying to figure out how to rebuild. And the, re the rebuilding started in uh, basically two places with, and this is a broad overview, in two places with two uh, different movements. You had in uh, Florence, the Italian Renaissance, which was the Italian Renaissance. Uh, Renaissance means 
rebirth and what were they trying to rebirth there in Florence after the plague was the classical period. Everything was about the classics, uh, architecture, art. Um, the humanists there were really uh, honed in on logical fallacies and um, and um, and rhetoric and um, you know just a different way of thinking. You had that going on, and then later in Germany you had the uh, Reformation that was going on uh, with Luther and these two movements, the Italian Renaissance and the Reformation, were about to bring about the the foundation of the modern era because before uh, the Reformation everything was orthodox Catholic Orthodox you take uh, the the uh, theory of cosmology at that time uh, no one was allowed to go against the Aristotelian view of cosmology at that time and then you all know the story of Galileo when he confirmed Copernicus. He was he was uh, punished. He was um, what's the word? What the the Catholics do when they when they punish you? They uh, inquest. It was the they put him through the Inquisition because he observed <laughs> he observed something that went against the orthodoxy and the fact that the earth traveled around the sun and the sun and the earth was not the center of the universe and that's just a small example of the orthodoxy that was going on controlled by the catholic church before the reformation and the renaissance uh those two periods you know um Coinciding with uh, one another, you had uh, Gutenberg, a German, creating a printing press for the first time, which the printing press, uh, when he first created it, it was all about the Bible and, uh, you know, uh, you know, printing the Bible in German and, and in English. Uh, that was the big crime uh, of, of that time because the Catholic Church said only Latin. You can only no one spoke Latin. Except if you were a priest and understood canon law. You're the only one. But the average Joe Smo in the streets did not understand Latin. But the Catholic Church had a strict orthodox rule that all of uh, Scripture must be in Latin. And Luther uh, decided that he wanted to uh, translate it into German. Tyndale wanted to translate it into English. And and, and uh, they sought to kill uh, uh, Luther in Germany. And they burnt uh, Tyndale at the stake for the crime of translating the Bible into his own language. But the printing press, when Gutenberg invented it, uh, he did to mass produce the Bible, but it also had another effect on the intellectual uh, advancements of that time because people for the first time were able to have an idea, put that idea in a small book or pamphlet, mass publish it and produce it, and then it goes out. If you're literate, it goes you know, to your household, uh, in your study. You have a library. You can read you know, uh, these ideas, and you can either agree with them. And if you don't agree with them, then you write a pamphlet <laughs> or a book refuting everything. This is before the scientific method. This is what was going on. Someone write an, an idea in, in a pamphlet or a book. People would read it. 
you know, uh, digest it, think about it. And then another uh, thinker uh, uh, or uh, intellectual would say, you know, I don't agree with this. So I'm going to make a book or a pamphlet and publish it. And you had competing ideas of people. This is before the scientific method. Francis Bacon created the scientific method in the uh, 17th century. Um, and then after this, the, this whole uh, question, as the age of reason, as the uh, Enlightenment period is uh, happening, the whole question of epistemology, how do we know what is true and how can we, you know, confirm what is true? And that's why Bacon, you know, created a system <laughs> for confirming what is true. First, you come up with a hypothesis. And then you formulate a theory based on your hypothesis. And then you test your theory. And then you test it again. And then you write it all up and you submit it for peer review. And your peers test it and see, how, and, and, and see if there's any mistakes. It all comes from this idea of free thought that is bringing about the modern era in Western society. These are the foundations of our thought. And then you had uh, Rene Descartes uh, with rationalism, the Darkesian. After he dies, the Darkesian uh, uh, faction and the, the empiricism uh, faction from John Locke, the Lockean faction. It's all about epistemology, <laughs> the, the quest for truth. And open debate. That's why it is so important. We have these two theories on how to beat this novel coronavirus, and one theory is being promoted as orthodoxy today, and any theory that goes against that orthodox opinion is being censored and shut out. Now, this, this other theory that I just was telling you about is this theory of herd immunity. Um, this is a doctor who was on the Bill Maher show last week, and uh, he's talking about herd immunity, this new theory. I want you to take a listen to what this guy says. All right. My next guest is the founding director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center. Who I love how, so these next clips, you're going to notice, I want you to notice this, that as these doctors are introduced, they are being introduced by laying out their entire resume, who these guys are. This is not your cousin Larry in his room making YouTube videos. These are healthcare professionals. These are doctors, and their credentials speak for themselves. All right, my next guest is the founding director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, who recently volunteered his time fighting COVID-19 at a hospital emergency department in the Bronx. Please welcome Dr. David Katz. Doctor, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks, your, thanks for having your me, Your credentials for talking about this are impeccable. I know you were at the uh, Einstein College of Medicine. You got your degree at the Yale School of Public Health. Nobody questions your credentials. Uh, they did some, some people question your op-ed that was in the New York Times about a month ago. It was called, Is Our Fight Against Corona Worse Than the Disease? I think it's good someone's at least asking that question. We can't just lapse into groupthink. Let me quote the thing you said recently that I think is most interesting and gets at this point. You said, if all we do is flatten the curve, you don't prevent deaths, you just change the dates. Explain that. 
Yeah, and and Bill, first of all, again, thank you. Great to be with you. Uh, th that's taken directly from some of the world-class risk modelers that I've been working with since that op-ed in the New York Times. So I wrote my op-ed. Tom Friedman wrote a column channeling mine, ran it up a high flagpole, and then a who's who in public health and economics found me, and we've been working together ever since. And so some of these risk models basically show you know, essentially what flattening the curve does is keeps people away from one another and away from the virus. So the virus doesn't spread, but you also don't cultivate any immunity. If you do a really effective job of locking everybody in place and preventing viral transmission, there's still some low-level potential for viral exposure out in the world, but very few of us get that exposure. The minute you release those clamps and let people back into the world, we're all vulnerable. So most of the models suggest that flattening the curve makes sense in phase one so you don't overwhelm medical systems, for example. But you've got to have a phase two. If you don't transition to a phase two, whenever you release the clamps, the virus is out in the world waiting for you. Everybody's vulnerable. And that big peak in cases and that big peak in deaths that you were trying to avoid really just happens at a later date. You're going to get the deaths no matter what, <laughs> is what he's saying. They just happen at a later date because you have not built up a, a community immunity to the virus, is what this doctor is saying. He's not the only one saying it, as I'm going to show you here in a moment. But there's, you, we know that millions of people, like I just explained to you, are walking around asymptomatic carrying this virus. Which is, I mean, when we're talking about the numbers too, and the and the death toll, uh, some of these people are being tested post mortem, <laughs> finding out they didn't even have any symptoms. They died from some other uh, disease, but they're being tested post mortem. And, oh, they have COVID nineteen. This is a COVID nineteen death. In cases in that big peak in deaths that you were trying to avoid really just happens at a later date. So you would be suggesting something more like what Sweden is doing. Uh, Sweden, we know, has... So herd immunity is being called the Swedish model because this is where it's being done. Uh, the major population area where uh, herd immunity is being uh, done. And they say that in Stockholm that they're expecting to be at herd immunity where uh, they don't have to worry about this virus uh, at all in Stockholm in the next week or so is what they're saying. Um, but it's being called the Swedish, the Swedish model. And it's not the Swedish model is kind of a misnomer. And I'll explain that to you in a moment, but I want you to take a look and listen at what this doctor does because he's on bill Mars show and I have to make it political. Then I have to say something negative about Sweden and their approach to tackling coronavirus. Watch what he does here. Open at schools. You can go to a bar, you can go to a restaurant and get your hair cut. Uh, they haven't had numbers that are that different uh, from countries that have locked down. How do you uh, sum up that? Yeah, so so let, let me start, Bill, by saying essentially what I reject, because I think we're a very polarized society. Absolutely. I think the way that's why you got to explain what you reject. Nobody really cares about what you reject. Extremes. So at one extreme, we've got the, you know, lock everything down, hunker in a bunker, until A, there's a vaccine 18 months or years or whenever, B, forever, or C, you 
die of something else, whichever comes first. That, that's just horrible. It's, it's inhumane, makes no sense. But at the other extreme, we've got the liberate blank, fill in the name of the state, which is basically, you know, everybody in the world. from the president. He, president tweeted, liberate uh, Virginia, liberate Florida. And uh, so he's, what he's doing now, he's going into politics. I just want you to understand that. Blank, fill in the name of the state, which is basically, you know, everybody in the water, including grandma and never mind. Everybody the in the water. Now, he's asked about Sweden and he says that I reject extremes. He says that I reject the reject the extreme of everybody locking into place. And I reject the extreme of everybody in the water, including grandma saying that that's an extreme. He's relating that to Sweden. That's not what sweden's policy is we're going to listen to a doctor in sweden tell you what their policy is here in a moment but he's getting political here no one says everybody in the water including grandma you know everybody in the water including grandma and never mind the riptides and the sharks and you know yeah, who's saying that no one is saying that and that's not sweden sweden's model um at all now the reason that I said it's a little bit of a misnomer to call this uh, the uh, this the Swedish uh, model, the the that this is something that is only going on in Sweden because this started herd immunity started in England. England, this was their approach. Now, it's funny because in Europe, they were doing all kinds of different things. Spain had locked down. Germany had locked down. Uh, Italy had locked down. Everyone's doing different things. Sweden's uh, got a, a different uh, herd immunity uh, system that I'm going to uh, explain in detail the way that they approached it there. But this started, the herd immunity idea started in England. And England changed from uh, the herd immunity strategy to the uh, to the uh, flatten the curve strategy after a paper was written at a university in England that used models that said that 500,000 500, Brits were going to die unless they changed from the herd immunity model to the flatten the curve model. This is a clip uh, in Australia. Now, Australia has been on both sides of the debate. Uh, what should we do? Should we adopt uh, the, because they're far away. They have this, you know, uh, big uh, continent by themselves. And they're figuring out how do we, you know, control this in Australia. And uh, they're debating, do we go the, and at this time, the clip I'm going to replay, they're asking, they're not even talking about Sweden. They're like, do we go the English route of herd immunity or do we go the, the Italy route of complete lockdown and flatten the curve? Uh, take a listen to this clip from Australia. So most European countries are adopting severe measures to contain the widespread of coronavirus. The only exception is the UK, where Boris Johnson strategizes to develop herd immunity over a long period of months, arguing that lockdowns are ineffective. Which strategy do you believe is most effective, in particular in the Australian context? Let me put this to you, Bill Botel. This is something that's come up a lot. Uh, this question of herd immunity, uh, enormously controversial. 
Well, it's extremely controversial. This guy is against the herd immunity uh, theory, and I'm going to let you listen to him <laughs> because I think all opinions are valid. And so this guy is against herd immunity, and he's going to give you some you know, ideas and, and, and theories about why he's against it. And that's fine. It assumes, it makes a set of assumptions uh, that are not scientifically evident. Coronavirus is a novel new infection. Nobody's immune to it. There is no immunity like there is to influenza. That's not true. So the choice you have, do you stop the infections or contain them in advance of them spreading in the community, as was the case in Taiwan and Korea and uh, Singapore and so on? Or do you uh, wait and do very little and then have a, a massive engulfment, as we've seen in Italy and France and now Spain and the United States, it has to be said, or apparently in the United Kingdom, do you adopt another policy uh, based on uh, unproven, untested uh, assumptions and effectively make a scientific experiment of your citizens and see how far a virus can spread? All right, so that's his theory. And But I just want you to understand that the theory of herd immunity started in the UK, started in England. All right, so this is a doctor, uh, Johan Gisecki, uh in Sweden. He is a, a senior epidemiologist and advisor in Sweden. He is being interviewed on this online uh, channel called Unheard, and he's going to explain what they did in Sweden, actually, and how it worked. I want you to take a listen to this guy. Hello, and welcome. Thanks for tuning in. You are watching Lockdown TV. This is the pop-up news and discussion program from Unheard. Uh, throughout the lockdown weeks, we have been bringing conversations and interesting people together to work out what's going on and how we should be thinking about this current crisis. Um, I'm delighted that today we are joined down the line from Sweden by um, Dr. Johan Giesecke. Um, uh, Dr. Giesecke, thank you so much for making the time today. My, my pleasure. So if I can give you, you help me a little bit here. I'm going to start off with his resume. <laughs> what qualifies this guy to be given his opinion? Sir. You trained originally at the London School of um, Tropical Medicine, is that right? No, uh, it started before that, actually. I used to be an infectious disease clinical doctor and worked a lot with AIDS patients during the 1980s. And that's what put me into epidemiology. And then I spent one year or two years at the London School of Tropical Medicine in the early 90s. And then I came back to Sweden and then I became state epidemiologist for Sweden which means having control over all the infectious diseases. Which is the job that uh, Anders Tegnell currently has. So I, I actually hired him 20 years ago, and then I was his boss, and now he's my boss. But it's working actually quite well. Um, and you're also, you, then, you then became chief scientist at the European Center for Disease Control? Yep. And what, what, is, what roles do you have now? Who are you advising at the moment? I'm advising Andrew Stegman at the Swedish Agency for Public Health uh, on a consultant basis. I'm retired, really, so I'm doing this mostly because it's fun. And the World Health Organization, you're also, you were saying you were on a call with them earlier today. Do you have an ongoing relationship with them? Yes, I'm advising the Director General together with a group of old scientists, but that's uh, unpaid. It's right. just an honorary post in a way. 
Um, so having, uh, as it were, established your credentials to talk with confidence on this topic, um, there's been a lot of confused thinking and a lot of confusion about what the correct response to a threat such as COVID-19 should be. Um, and I just wanted to begin by getting your kind of summary thoughts of, of you know, how Sweden is differing from other countries um, and why you think that is. The main reason is that we or the Swedish government decided early in January that the measures we should take against the pandemic should be evidence-based. And when you start looking around for the measures that are being taken now by different countries, you find that very few of them have the shred of evidence base. Uh, but one we know that's known for 150 years or more, and that is washing your hands is good for you and good for others when you're in an epidemic. But the rest, like border closures, school closures, social distancing, there's almost no science behind most of these. So what is the current um, policy in Sweden? Social distancing is part of the policy, isn't it? Mm. What, yes. what, what is the regime that Sweden has um, gone with? The main difference to other countries is that uh, there's no, you're not locked up in your home. Uh, if you go out to buy food or groceries or drugs, I mean medicines, um, there's no police to stop you in the street and say, so, and let me just explain to you what he's saying here, because the guy says, he says that uh, social distancing is part of what you did. It's not everybody in the water plus grandma. We did social distancing in Sweden. We just didn't mandate social distancing. We asked the community to stay at home and to practice social distancing. And those who wanted to and who were afraid, they could do it. But those who wanted to go out and go to a restaurant and go shopping and all that stuff, they could. L listen to the strategy that they had. Sweden here. Home, uh, if you go out to buy food or groceries or drugs, I mean medicines, um, there's no police to stop you in the street and say, ask you what you're doing here. That's one thing. People are asked to stay inside, but there's no reinforcement or enforcement of that. People are asked to stay inside, but there is no enforcement. It's not everybody in the water and grandma. That's not what's going on in Sweden. It's not what happened. People are asked to stay inside, but there's no reinforcement or enforcement of that. Um, people do it anyway. So that's one. Uh, we have the rule that a crowd cannot be bigger than 50 people. Crowd cannot be bigger than 50 people. It's a restriction that they had in Sweden. It's not everybody in the water and grandma. Crowd can't be more than 50 people. So I can still have an event for 49 people? Yes. I want. Uh, you could. And uh, the schools, the upper schools are closed. Secondary education and universities are closed. Schools up to age 15, 16 are open. So schools are closed. Some schools are closed. Some schools are open. Uh, the schools where teenagers, young people who are low risk, those are open. Um, what more do we have? Don't the nursing homes or, or houses for old people are close to visitors? Nursing homes, hospices, they're closed for visitors. That makes sense. 
It's not everybody in the water. Plus, grandma. Grandma's not in the water with the sharks. <laughs> and like the doctor that was on the Bill Maher show said about Sweden, it's not true. Old folks home, hospices. They shelter their elderly and the high-risk people. Those are the people they quarantine. That was the policy in Sweden. So it's, it's a, it sounds like it's a moderate um, social distancing regime then at, at the yeah, moment. It is. Um, it's and- very, sorry, it's very similar to the one that the UK had before. There was a famous paper in by the Imperial College, by the modelers who made models for infectious diseases. That All right, let's talk about Imperial College who create, like he says, is very similar to the model that the UK had. The UK started the herd immunity policy and the Swedes follow their lead. Now, why did the UK change from herd immunity and go to uh, flatten the curve? Is because this Imperial College university created this model that said half a million brits were gonna die if they didn't go to the flatten the curve uh model so they changed it based on this model i'm going to put this article in the show notes multiple articles it is absolutely true and uncontested that the bill and nancy gates foundation donated $14.5 million last year to the London Institute, this university that came out with this model. So what I'm telling you people, we based our lockdown in the United States based on a model from the Washington State University in Washington, also funded by the Bill and Nancy Gates Foundation, that said 200,000 people were going to die if we didn't lock down and employ the flatten the curve model. So we did that based on uh, on these models coming from this university funded by uh, Bill and Nancy Gates, shut down our whole economy, shut down our whole society based on these models, these numbers that were telling us 200,000 people were going to die. And now they've come out and said these models were wrong and they've readjusted them uh, to now 70,000 people. Wow. And people are getting this information and they're digesting it and they're getting angry. That's where the protests are coming in. This same univer- uh, 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 this university in England did the same thing, same models. They predicted even more <laughs> deaths, half a million deaths, and they shut down. This is the shut down the uh, society based on these models. And both are funded by Bill and Nancy Gates. What are Bill and Nancy Gates doing? Bill Gates. I mean, this is doctors are being censored and shut out of discussion. This guy hasn't graduated high school and he's all over everywhere giving his opinion about the pandemic. Who is this guy? Insane. By the Imperial College, by the modelers who made models for infectious diseases that came out on the day after you made a U turn in England. Yeah, so tell us about that. So the, the, the original strategy in the UK um, became known as a kind of herd immunity strategy. Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. it was called. Um, before we get come on to talk about the imperial model, which I would like to talk about, is it correct to call it herd immunity? And, and is that the Swedish strategy? It's not a strategy, but it's a byproduct of the strategy. But the strategy is to protect the old and the frail. 
try to minimize their risk of becoming infected and taking care of them if they get infected. Uh, and if you do that the way we're doing it, you would probably get herd immunity in the end. But that's a byproduct of the, it's not the, the main reason to do it. So you were saying then, so the initial UK response seemed to be similar to what you, what Sweden is doing now, and you thought that was better? Yeah. No, so, I think it was very good, actually. And we were very pleased with having the same policy as, as the UK. That gave some credibility to what we were doing. But uh, then Mr. Johnson made, made his 180-degree turn. Yeah, so why, you know, there may have been other political factors involved. He was definitely um, under a lot of pressure because lots of European countries were doing a formal lockdown at that he point. He contracted. They're talking about Boris Johnson. He contracted the virus as well. I mean, I'm not going to even say that, but Boris Johnson got sick as well. And this paper, uh, the pressure, uh, him getting sick had a lot to do with him changing course. But it started in England. Because lots of European countries were doing a formal lockdown at that point. But the, the turning point did seem to be that inter Imperial College report, which mm -hmm. forecasts 510,000 deaths in the UK. 510,000 deaths is what this model said. 510,000 deaths. I think that the population of, uh, of uh, Britain is something like 60 million. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> and these people are funded by Bill and Nancy Gates. To me, that inter Imperial College report, which mm -hmm. forecasts 510,000 deaths in the UK with a completely unmitigated approach, 250,000 deaths with a mitigated approach, which is roughly equivalent to what you're doing in Sweden. And then it suggests that it might be as few as 20,000 if we did a full suppression or lockdown. What was your impression of that paper? Um, I think it's not very good. <laughs> and the thing that they miss a little is uh, any models for in infectious disease spread are very popular. Many people do them. They're good for teaching. They seldom tell you the truth because... They seldom um, tell you the truth. I make a small parenthesis. Which model could have assumed that the outbreak would start in northern Italy, in Europe. Listen to him. Difficult to model that one. Listen to him. Uh, and any such model, it looks complicated. There are strange mathematical formula and integral signs and stuff. But the, it rests on the assumptions. And the assumptions in that article could be heavily criticized. You put the, I set this three podcasts ago, that the model spit out the information that you put in. I mean... Come on. The models are crap. <laughs> They're absolutely crap. This is another doctor, PhD doctor, not MD. He's a PhD of political science, and uh, he's an economist in Australia. He's on the side of uh, the herd immunity debate in uh, Australia. I want you to listen to a little bit of what this gentleman says, because uh, I tend to agree with him. Danish political scientist Dr. Bjorn Lomborg is a globally recognized economist and big thinker who's turned his expertise to the coronavirus conundrum. You know, in Australia, the speed limit is 110 kilometers an hour. If you want to save everyone who dies in traffic, you should just 
take it down to five kilometers an hour. Nobody would die. But of course, the point is you don't want to do that because it also has huge social ramifications. We I'm sorry, I said that he was a Danish uh, uh, doctor. He, I mean, I said that he was an Australian doctor. He's a Danish doctor. But this is being broadcast on 60 Minutes in Australia. Take it down to five kilometers an hour. Nobody would die. But of course, the point is you don't want to do that because it also has huge social ramifications. We should do a lot for Corona, but we shouldn't do everything. Just like we should have speed limits, but we shouldn't have speed limits down to five kilometers an hour. Dr. Lomborg reckons going too hard on lockdown is a strategy that will come back to bite us in the long run. The middle ground, he believes, means opening society up and accepting more coronavirus deaths in the short term. When you close down uh, uh, primary and secondary schools, when you close down jobs, are you actually creating more damage, more long-term death, more long-term unemployment and unpleasantness for the whole population compared to what you're achieving in saved lives? I mean, we in Australia are just taking the policy decisions on the chin so far. But that's it, isn't it? How far do we go? And how do we sensitively strike that balance between saving lives and crippling the entire economy? So I think a lot of people want to do a lot of good for the coronavirus. And so they're willing to say, look, I'm, I'm going to take, uh, take it on the chin, as you say. But ask yourself this. Do you think the same people, when they finally get out uh, from, from this lockdown and see the devastation of their economies, then being asked when the second wave comes around and say, I'm sorry, could you do it all over again? And then a third time, remember, we'll have to keep open, close, open, close, you have open, to do. Close. I mean, if you go this route, flatten the curve, then that means in the fall, let's flatten the curve again. <laughs> it's flatten the curve next winter. And then, you know, then, you know, summer months coming until we get a vaccine, I guess, if you're going to take the vaccine. I mean, I, I'm not taking the vaccine. I'm just telling you that right now. But uh, you can call me anti-vax, whatever. I'm not even getting into that. But I'm not taking Bill and Nancy Gates vaccine. Sorry. Um, here's another doctor. Uh, this guy is uh, chief of neurology from Stanford University, uh, Dr. Scott Atlas. He's on Fox. Let's take a listen to what he says. Because I want you to understand that people are listening to these opinions, and these are the people who are out protesting and saying, open it up. Because they're getting a totally different viewpoint from you, a totally different side, a totally different theory, still coming from professionals, still coming from doctors that are saying something totally different from Gavin Newsom, who's never been to medical school, and Cuomo, who's never been to medical school. They're governors. They've been elected governors of their state. But people who are out protesting the governors, no one's protesting Cuomo uh, because uh, New York's the epicenter of, of the United States. But in, in states like California, Texas, you know, where these numbers are not necessarily outrageous like they are in California, I mean, in uh, New York. And people are protesting, open it up. We want our economy back. They're listening to these doctors that I'm playing. They're listening to these theories. They're listening to these opinions. And they have every right to be out protesting. 
This is Dr. Atlas. Take a listen. Tonight. So my next guest is a senior fellow at Stanford University, and he wrote Resume. Give me his resume right off the bat. What qualifies this guy? That has gotten a lot of attention tonight. It is titled, The Data is In, Stop the Panic, and End the Total Isolation. So here now to explain the title of that piece is Dr. Scott Atlas, former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. Doctor, thank you very much for being here. So, so why should we stop the panic and end the total isolation, in your opinion? Well, I mean, I think we're in a different position now than we were a month ago. And that position is we have a lot of evidence. We don't need to just simply emphasize hypothetical projections. We can combine that empirical data. Instead of ignoring it, we can combine that with our knowledge of fundamental biology. For decades, we've known a lot about viruses, a lot about infections, and for decades, even about this family of viruses. And then we can thoughtfully combine that evidence have. with the, the way to restore the country in a safe way. Hmm. So you say that, that most people in this country are not in danger of, of dying from COVID-19. Explain. Well, sure. I mean, these are some of the key facts that we've learned. And point number one is that the overwhelming majority of people do not have any significant risk of dying. This is shown all over the world. And in fact, what induced the panic was this overestimation of what's called Models. the fatality rate of the infection. By Models the is what induced the panic. But the, the, in reality, the, it's a fraction. So if you take the number of people who are going to die and you divide it by the people who are infected, they got three to five percent of people, which is very high. But now we know from data all over the world, including the U.S., that a massive number of people have the virus that were either asymptomatic. In fact, 50% of people that are infected have zero symptoms. Wow, did you hear that? 50% of people that are affected have zero symptoms, asymptomatic. That's, I mean, I know the show is called According to Sam, but this is not coming from me. This was just said by the chief of neuroradiology uh, Dr. Scott Atlas from Stanford University just said 50% of people are asymptomatic carriers of the coronavirus, COVID-19. I mean, I, it's explosive. <laughs> and then people are dying in car accidents and they're being tested uh, you know, for coronavirus, being pressured to test for coronavirus because they died from some other cause and they're being pressured to test. Oh, this person just came in from a car accident. He's decapitated. Well, let's test him for COVID. <laughs> and he's got COVID. Asymptomatic, going about his day every day without any symptoms. And he tests positive. Oh, add him to the numbers that a massive number of people have the virus that were either asymptomatic. In fact, 50% of people that are infected have zero symptoms. And then another large percentage have nothing really significant that demands any medical care and certainly not hospitalization. So when you look at the newer data that has come out, the estimates are that the fatality rate is very low maybe 0.1%. I mean, it's not set, it's not known exactly, but these are estimates. And we also know that when you take the people who are gonna die, two thirds of people from, this is New York data, two thirds of people are over 70. 
95% of people are over 50. If you're young and healthy, you have essentially zero, near zero chance of dying. And then the last part of who's at risk to die are, when you look at the hotbed in the U.S., New York City, it's something like 99.2%. Uh, wow, 99.2%. 99.2% of this person who he's getting ready to name is at risk of dying. It's something like 99.2% uh, today's data of all those investigated for underlying conditions. 99.2% had yeah. some underlying condition. I mean, that's really critical. And what are the most prevalent among those? The number one uh, is if, if you take away age, the number one underlying condition is obesity and diabetes. Uh, those are the top two. Obesity and diabetes. So he just said 99 point something percent of the people had these underlying conditions that are dying. And these underlying conditions are obesity and diabetes. And you wonder why the the black community in uh, Louisiana got hit so hard and in, in Michigan? Obesity? And diabetes. That's why. I mean, I'm sorry that I have to say it. It's the truth. And hypertension, mm -hmm. uh, although it's not clear how impactful each one of these is, there's not a lot of good data on these. Yeah. But other diseases like kidney disease, uh, congestive heart failure. I mean, these are these are significant underlying conditions. If you're young and otherwise healthy, yeah. you have essentially zero risk of dying and a very, very low risk as the second point of being hospitalized because the policies are directed to stop people from dying and to prevent overcrowding. And we know that protecting the at-risk population will prevent hospital overcrowding. I mean, that's really very critical. Uh, if you're under 18 in New York, you make up 0.6% of the hospitalizations. And people should be allowed to go about their business. They should be allowed to go about their business and 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 man, this is another clip. This is uh, Doctor Atlas, the same gentleman you were just listening to, and uh, he's on Tucker Carlson on uh, this clip. But he says some different stuff here. It talks about uh, the herd immunity uh, theory as well. I want you to listen to him. Atlas is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. We're happy to have him on. Tonight, doctor, thanks for coming on. So let me just leaving the political questions aside, bottom line it, given what we are learning about how easy it is to spread this virus between adults and about its actual death rate, what kind of response seems scientifically justifiable now? Yes, and that, that's really the key question is how to move forward. Well, it's actually good news that the virus spreads widely and without high risk uh, to the vast majority of people. It's in fact, half the people are totally asymptomatic. Now, why is that good news? That's good news because that means that we have a better chance of developing population immunity. Instead of total lockdown going on, which prevents that, we have a chance to have people develop their own antibodies and eventually have enough people have these antibodies to block this sort of network of progression and contagion 
to the people who are vulnerable. That's exactly the same reason why we give widespread vaccines, to induce the so-called herd immunity. And by the way, that's exactly the same thinking about why it might be useful to take serum from people with antibodies who've had the virus and use it as a treatment or a prevention to those who are vulnerable to the virus. We don't know for sure that antibodies that are produced are effective in giving immunity, but we expect it. It's consistent with decades of virology and immunology literature, and actually it would be unexpected if that didn't happen. So the idea that the nation needs to remain frozen in place until a vaccine is developed, uh, assess that recommendation, if you would. Well, I, I think it's not just counterproductive that I, as I just mentioned, it's actually harmful. It's harmful because we know, as you alluded to, massive healthcare that is critical has been uh, skipped, avoided. About half of people with cancer who get chemotherapy have skipped their treatments. Roughly 80% of the brain surgery cases have been canceled. We're talking about people who have not only skipped critical care for acute stroke and acute heart attack, but in addition, all the biopsies for unsuspected and now, un, now undiscovered people tumors have, other medical have issues. not occurred. We're talking thousands per week. People have other medical issues is what he's saying, is that, that we've shut everything down based on these models from universities funded by Bill Gates. Uh, and, and just reacting to these models on fear, we won't let anybody who needs uh, standard uh, treatments or surgeries, life-saving treatments or surgeries, come to the hospital. We've implemented these draconian policies based on these uh, models, and he's saying it's ridiculous. He's... <laughs> Those. And what's more so and even ironic is that people are skipping their children's vaccines. We are not only people have died and are dying, but we are creating a massive problem by not opening up health care with this single minded policy of COVID-19 at all costs. And of course, the second part of it is we know how to protect the vulnerable here. It's not uh, so simple, but we know who the vulnerable population is. And we yes. know that as we go and let people mingle, like happened in the epicenter in New York, which is sort of, this goes back to what you said, over 20% of people in Manhattan were discovered to have antibodies. And that, that's a good number. It would have even been higher if we would have had more social mingling, but we know that young people, young, healthier people, I don't see the logic in having keeping them isolated. Yes. They're a vehicle to keep uh, the transmission going to other lower risk groups and have population immunity develop. All right. Are, are we allowed to listen to, to Dr. Atlas and his opinion? Is, is that okay? Because it goes against orthodoxy? I mean, and these people are being essentially censored. They're being, they're, I mean, they're, this guy's on Fox. Fox are reporting with some of these guys. And, uh, and and you see the guys out in Michigan protesting with the guns and the people who uh, are protesting in California and they're angry because they want to open everything up. They're watching these guys. But when I say that they're, they're essentially being censored, I mean, Dr. Atlas isn't being booked on uh, NBC or ABC or CNN. No one's talking about herd immunity in mainstream media. You're only getting the flatten the curve theory 
And then you are watching mainstream media also play the clips of the protesters and defame them because they don't agree with the herd immunity theory and they're idiots, you know, they, they, they're dumb. They don't know what's going on. You, you have no idea about this se- whole separate theory that is going on in the medical community. Doctors talking about this, like Dr. Atlas that I just said, and you're listening to your mainstream media, regular mainstream media TV, uh, you know, tell you about only flatten the curve. Fauci's word is the only word in medicine. There are no other doctors. He's the high command commander in medicine you see the divide where the divide's coming in and because people are getting different stories <laughs> uh i mentioned earlier in the podcast that uh, elon musk even uh has uh, called these and and i played this i'm going to play the clip of elon musk because we're listening to bill gates he's and we were watching some documentary on netflix the other night about coronavirus and Bill Gates is all over. He probably funded it. Why are we listening to this guy? Who is this guy? What is what is Bill Gates' agenda? Ask yourself. He's the CEO of a, of a of a company, a, a great company, Microsoft. Rich billionaire. I didn't even graduate college. I mean, why are we listening to him? What? What makes him more of an authority than Dr. Atlas, who I just played, or the other doctors that I just played? He's the CEO of a company, just like uh, Elon Musk. And this is what Elon Musk said about the lockdown. If somebody wants to stay in the house, that's, that's great. They should be allowed to stay in the house, and they should not be compelled to leave. But to say that they cannot leave their house, um, and they will be arrested if they do, this is, this is, a, this is, a, this is fascist. This is not democratic. This is not freedom. Um, He said that in a meeting with investors, earnings meeting, and he said it was fascist. It's not freedom to mandate that people have to stay in their house and these lockdown orders. And people are out protesting. Um... So I hope that you understand now why people are out protesting. You may not agree with them, but it's okay to have different opinions in free societies. We'll be back with episode 60 soon. We're going to talk about Joe Biden. We're going to talk about Tara Reid. We're going to talk about uh, Donald Trump and his accusers. Uh, Please be back and uh, I'll try to get that out as soon as possible. Visit the website, share the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening.